0: I was told to make an announcement just now about, it was forgot to mention in the early service. I'm sure we'll remember for you second servicers, so you can hear it twice. That just repetition is one of the great laws of learning, right? But um, the Wednesday night meal this time will be to raise money for Panama. So we just wanted you to know that so you could make an a effort to be here and to support that good work. What's the menu, John? What's the menu? John? Salad, spaghetti, garlic bread, and dinner. Italiano. You can just pretend like you're in Lady and the Tramp. You know, isn't that what they ate when they're, you know? You know. All right, we are still studying Christian evidences. Um, I'd I said this in the early service sermon, and I will again. But thank you for all your prayers for my family. It's been one of the harder weeks of our lives just because of all of us kids had to dive in to help it was so problematic Uh, my mom and dad don't live near any of us and my dad has to give my mom constant care that's not been happening for some time Uh, so because he's not felt well and didn't take his medicine well and that's why he his Coumadin and didn't get has a bad blood clot in his leg and came within a hair's breadth of not surviving and They've got him on medicine now. He's back at home. There's a member of the church there checking in on him, working with him since Jared and I stayed as long as we could, and he we, he and I both drove back yesterday, and um, with I big part of my week is I had to drive my mother down to my sister's in Mississippi. My mother is pretty much bedfast, so that was difficult, and um, she doesn't want to be there, so that was difficult, and so it's, a, it's just difficult all the way around, so please pray for us. But I also want you to pray for a little Seth today. Today is a a milestone for him in ministry and a difficult day. He is transferring to Freed Harderman in January and that's been a great blessing. We're excited he'll be closer to where, where we're going to be, only an hour and ten minutes or so from where we're going to be. But And they are treating him very well at Freed Harderman, but he is having to say goodbye to that little church that he's preached for for the last two years and he has been a little emotional about it. He's never done this before, so pray for him today because he should be preaching, well, within the next hour and um, his last sermon for the Flatwoods Church of Christ. So it's one of those milestones in life, but, but he, he's emotional about it. We are in our study of Christian evidences, and last time we started into a look at how we got the Bible Now, I'll tell you that I'm very passionate about this subject because the Word of God, the Bible, I believe, is everything we sing about it. You know, give me the Bible, star of gladness gleaming. And it it talks about the fact that it is the lamp of life immortal. I love that phrase, the lamp of life immortal. And then we think of the words of, do we sing... I think we've sang it here, ancient words, have you heard that song before? Ancient words long preserved for our walk in this world. We resound with one, uh, I that thine own heart, Oh, let the ancient words impart. Words of life, words of hope, give us strength and help us cope. In this world where we roam, ancient words will guide us home. And I have spent my entire life as a student, still am, not after a few months from now, but still am as of right now. And then I'm never sitting in a classroom again except to teach it, (laughs) never. But I've spent my whole life in education and not all of it's been in the Bible. I've studied a lot of philosophy and a lot of history and a lot of uh, literature and read most of the classics that the world would consider to be the, you know, I've started reading through the greatest 100 books ever written and things of that nature and probably got half of them read. And I'll tell you, there have been some magnificent things written. And it's no wonder that man has such a profound and marvelous mind because we're made in the image of God. So that shouldn't surprise us. But I don't know of anything ever written that even compares that even can be compared to the Word of God. And I say that not just emotionally, I say that objectively. Because I, I had a friend, one of my dear friends back in Alabama, he was a computer science guy. And we would joke, I'd joke about his work and I'd say, what a great job, you get to play video games all day. You know? And he said, well, at least my whole job isn't just studying one book. How easy would that be? You know. And I said, depends on the book. Have you ever heard a sermon on a passage you've heard your whole life and something you see something you've never seen before? Hopefully you have because that's my objective. It's what I try to do. Because that's when sermons have come alive to me is I want to find something that's new and fresh because I believe that every passage in the Bible, even if we only have one chapter of the Bible. You could study it your whole life and there'd still be things you haven't found there. And that's different than anything else that's ever been written because it was written by the divine. And to be very clear, and I don't care if the intellectuals or the academic elite or those who are considered the most knowledgeable or have the most letters behind their names appreciate it or not. I don't care. I'm telling you, I believe that every word of what we call the original autographs. Now we've talked about translation issues, but the original, that means the piece of paper that the apostle Paul wrote on, the piece of paper that Peter wrote on when he wrote first and second Peter, the piece of paper that Luke wrote on when he wrote the gospel of Luke and Matthew and so forth and so on. I believe that every word of that was breathed from the mind of God through inspiration and was perfect without any flaw now what we have before us our English Bible I still believe that in essence it is perfect without any flaw now can you find some and we pointed out some of this are there some translation I hate to use the word issues because that makes it sound like it's a problem are there some translation discrepancies there are there are that does not change the power of the word of God Because I will tell you this, try to find any supposed discrepancy that's in an issue that has to do, or or on a subject that has to do with anything that is vital to your faith or your life or pleasing God or living for Him, you won't find it. You might find a the that's not in one and in the other, or you might find a, you know, there's one, Muslims have a course they actually teach on how to discredit the Bible, and all the stuff they do is, well, well in Chronicles it says that, it was, that this pillar was 26 cubits high, and in Kings it says it was 18 cubits high. Therefore, the Bible's not true. And I say, thank goodness knowing the height of a pillar is not part of the plan of salvation. So what? And in that, that's why I have emphasized, and I hope you take that message in the future with you that I've tried to emphasize to you is that we are not here searching for proof. We are here building our faith. And there is a difference. When people try to prove this to me, I I just don't even try. That's counterproductive to God's plan and his purpose. It's counterproductive to his desire. If God wanted to prove himself to everyone, he could do that. But proof requires no faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because faith is built on love. And all God wants is... He doesn't want you to believe in Him. Satan believes in Him. He wants you to believe in Him because He wants you to love Him. Satan doesn't love Him. See? And that requires faith it requires the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not not seen and i believe that every word of that book is words of the divine and that's one of the reasons why one of the things that d- deeply disturbs me about our current religious climate even in the lord's church in many many places is this tendency to want to look and interpret it based upon what would be best received now we have to be all things to all men right and we have to be um the best that we can be in the in the midst of our culture to in order to reach people paul says to a jew i become a jew and to a greek i become a greek and we need to do that but here At the end of the day, it doesn't matter if I understand it. It doesn't matter. Now, I'm going to try to understand it. I'm going to spend my life in quest of that goal. Doesn't matter if I like it. There are some things in Scripture that I just don't know if I would have done it that way if I were God. And Lord, you know I don't mean that arrogantly because I ain't God. And realizing that you are not God, to submit and say that's what the Word of God said. And it matters because it's the Word of God. It is His divinely, and God, you see, if as a believer, our base core belief has to be that God knows better for us than we know for ourselves. And But when we interpret the Word of God based upon what we have decided we know must be right, therefore the, the Bible must be saying that somewhere, and if we don't see it, then we're reading it wrong, that's got like the, the, you know, the cart before the horse, no you know there are things I don't know how to I don't know how to deal with sometimes just be truthfully because I want to be true to what the word of God says example um, as a preacher and I was talking to Seth about this the other day he was talking about his life and the future and what he'll have to deal with as a preacher and I said well have you thought much about marriage divorce and remarriage he said no I'm just going to try to avoid that I said good luck (laughs) I said good luck Mm. I said, if you do, you'll be the first preacher in history. Because our society has been ravaged by marriage and divorce and remarriage and and broken relationships. I mean, it's been ravaged by it. But I'll tell you, when I look in Scripture and read what Jesus said about it in Matthew 19, which isn't a very long section, and what Paul said about it in 1 Corinthians 7, which is a longer section, but... Paul Peter said some of the things Paul writes are hard to understand right I mean it's what does he mean by some of this and then the principle that I don't want to ever add to or take from what the word of God says and I look at that and I try to apply it to the mess that people's lives have become then I'm not in any way disparaging or not feeling compassionate or or I mean I hurt for people and I and I hurt for their kids and I hurt for their pain and and I look at that and I want to be compassionate and I know how I think God wants to think about it. Right? How I would think about it if I were God. The problem is is that I can't just interpret what God wants based upon what I think God could, should want. Right? So I read what Jesus says and then Jesus just stops talking about it. You know, and it's hard because people come to as a preacher I said set People are going to come in your office and ask you for advice on this. And it's kind of your responsibility to give them some. There have been hundreds of times people have come and I've heard the situation and I, my heart goes out to them and it's broken for them. And, and I look and, I say, and all I know to say is I'm going to read you what the Scriptures say. And you have to determine what that means because I don't have all the answers because it's beyond my tiny now I know that you can go buy dozens, hundreds of books from brothers in the church who've got that subject all figured out I don't know how they have it all figured out because I have studied that for 30 years and trying to apply it in people's lives is difficult, difficult but I know this. I do not want to go beyond what Jesus said because that's what I think it should be. Because he knows better than we do for us. And I'm telling you, that has wrenched out my heart hundreds of times because of my limited ability to understand. And so I read what the scriptures say and I said that, and they'll ask me, well, what does that mean? And I said, I, in our situation Jesus didn't say exactly what that means in your situation what is you read it what does that mean and then they'll now sometimes they'll ask me what would you do if you're in my situation I tell them I don't know how not to sometimes it's not the answer people want to hear but I don't want to go beyond the word of God because it's the word of God I don't want to go beyond the word of God. Even when the world says things the Bible says emphatically are sin, the world says, well, that's not sin. That's how people were made. And I feel compassion for people, folks. We gotta stop acting like we hate people who are living sinful lives. We love the sinner. And I don't even know, I don't even know if I like the language, well, we hate the sin and we love the sinner. Because sometimes people use that excuse to be really ugly to sinners. Jesus was never ugly to sinners. You find one time, except religious pompous people. He's the only people he was ugly to. I mean, right? But you know, women caught in adultery, he's pretty nice to them. Prostitutes, he's pretty, pretty nice to them. Now, he tells them the truth, but he, he's kind. We love sinners. But... That doesn't mean, because the Bible tells us to love sinners. That's part of the word of God too, isn't it? But the Bible, if it says something isn't good for man, therefore it's sinful, then we need to go to our grave with our last breath, defending the only source of truth in a world ruled by a father of lies. That's my rant for today. I'll probably have another one, you know me. Any comments before we move into today's message? right that's a great point chuck there's nobody i consider a higher authority than you on that as far as what's important to reach people yeah i mean i just i just wish we could take back all of the discussions about things that are in the wrong timing you know what i mean don't ever 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 discuss instrumental music with someone before they're a christian It's just a useless conversation. They can't even understand where you're coming from. It's like trying to discuss calculus with a seven-year-old. I mean, it's just not going to work. Why? They don't have the basis to be able to understand that higher level of math. Right? But yet we try to discuss, I mean, because our reasoning comes from a hermeneutic that comes from a a reverence for the Bible, that comes from an idea of trying to be the primitive church of the first century, that comes from a restoration model. I mean, you've got like all these steps. It's like trigonometry or calculus to someone who knows 3 plus 3 equals 6. And sometimes people who think 3 plus 3 equals 5, right? I mean, don't discuss that. Discuss where they are. Exactly. I mean, if, if a person, if where you're starting with somebody is they don't know if there's a God, just talk about that. If you're talking with somebody who knows there is a God, but just doesn't know how to serve him, then talk about that. Or a person who doesn't know if they're saved, then talk about how to be saved. And then, if you're talking to somebody who is saved, and then they don't know what church to attend, then you can talk about that. But you talk about things that are appropriate to where they are. Where they are. Because folks, it, I mean, if, if a person's right or wrong about a lot of these things, and there are minor things in comparison to major things. Jesus said that. He said, you focus on the minor things of the law rather than the major things of the law. And he said, but you should have focused on this and that. I mean, we can focus on both, but we do need to be able to prioritize things, right? It's important. Other comments, Thoughts? Okay, for the purpose of understanding where we got the Bible today, we're going to look at the Testaments separately, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Another pet peeve, something that I really, really don't like, is when religious people, and sometimes it happens even in the church, almost depict that the Old Testament and New Testament are separated, not just in content, but even in tone or intentionality. What I mean by that is that they separate that the old, in the Old Testament, the law was hard and God was mean and God, but then the God of the New Testament, I've heard people say that even in the church, use the phrase, the God of the New Testament. We don't believe in two gods. Okay? God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is the same God who sent Jesus as he is when he was going to destroy the world in the time of, of Noah, right? He's, this, he's the same God with the same character, the same plan. And it's just, frankly, it's an ignorance of Scripture when we, when we talk that way. Because, and that's for this reason, I know the timeline does the same thing. But the thing that helped me see that more than anything was sitting with my daddy when he'd go on Bible studies and my job was to flip the slides on the Jill Miller film strip. When it said, ding, then I was... Everybody remember that? <laughs> Give me the Bible, star of God. I mean, they had that in there. And um, tell me the story of Jesus. I've heard that song more listening to Joel Miller film strips than even in worship in my life. They were magnificent. They were magnificent. And unfortunately, they fell out of favor because you just couldn't show people in... Leisure suits, you know, and stuff in the 1990s because <laughs> it was very dated, right? But the, the thing that I appreciated the most about that, and when I was a younger preacher, I remember Linda Road in, in Idaho, we showed the Jewel Miller film strip on video once a year to the whole church on Sunday nights. we play one for five, for five different times, we would play all five of the Jewel Miller film strips. And the reason I love them is they tell the they tell the gospel starting from Genesis chapter one to the book of Revelation and they tell you about God's incredible plan and story all the way through. And they tie in Moses and Jesus and they tie in you know, the shadow system of the Old Testament with the reality in Christ. It's, it's wonderful. So we're gonna look today at the Old and New Testament, how the communication of God to man gradually progressed through a series of stages, okay? In the Old Testament, first of all, what is the first means whereby God communicated with mankind? Oral, right, directly. In the patriarchal dispensation, God spoke directly to mankind. Some men who experienced this direct conversation with God were Adam, Noah, Abraham, and Joseph. And there are others. But direct communication with mankind. Now you don't get any more you know solid, any more clear than that. Direct communication with mankind. Now that is interesting when you think about it because we have a lot of notions and thoughts that just don't take into account the human existence. I've I kind of wonder if sometimes we think, well, you know, all of our problems would be solved if we could just ask God and he would answer us outright. You know, maybe we might think, well, I probably wouldn't struggle with sin if I could just talk to God and he'd talk directly to me. Yeah, you would. You know, I know this. They did. Isn't that interesting? They did. They struggled, Abraham as the father of faith. And his one recorded sin, well, I guess the Hagar instance is a sin too, but this major recorded sin about, that he repeated was he lied about his wife, which was a lack of faith. That's called being a human being, you know? Father of faith whose weakness is a lack of faith. What irony. But he had direct communication with God. He sat and had a debate with him and bartered the Lord down remember? Mm-hmm. Yet he still struggled when they wanted to take his pretty wife. Man, she must have been something at 90 years old. You know, <laughs> like Doris. I mean, hey, we understand. Good thing our king's still around, Doris. You'd be a hot commodity. I mean, they. but, you know, every, everybody seemed to want her where they went. And, and he... I mean, it's so weird because he talks to God face to face, right? I mean, well, at least voice to voice. Then he says, I mean, why didn't he just say, God, I'm worried about this. Give me an answer and have a conversation. But he's a human being. He's a human being. God spoke orally to those patriarchs. Comments, thoughts? John. Uh, I think Job would categorize. Yeah, because Job complains to God really, really seriously. And God says, you will listen and answer me. Where were you when I stretched and found the... So, yeah, I think... See what I mean? So, and Job... Yeah. Initiates. Initiates the conversation. Um, I actually think there are... I think in the life of Abraham, there's one. I don't know. I'd have to. Anybody, Ron? Do you know of any others where man initiated the conversation with God? Okay, I'll think about it. But I, at least the Job one fits that. I think, huh? Melchizedek. Okay. Yeah, we don't. We don't know. Um. So yeah, I don't know if Abraham literally could, but he's had conversations with God. You'd think he might try, right? I mean. You know, Lord, I need your help in this. So, Yeah. Well. Right, right, right. But, but he responds to us through the word of God because that builds greater faith than if he talks to us directly. You know, I, I just hate it when people think we're missing out. We're not missing out. The Bible says that we live in the greatest age because we live, you realize you live in the age of faith. In the age of faith, Jesus says, blessed are you because you've touched my hands and feet. But more blessed are those who believe, who haven't touched my hands and my side. Ron, you had a comment? Yeah, Balaam. Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of God communicating in those early chapters of the Bible. So I don't know. We'd have to look at that. But I don't think it's impossible because of the Job situation. Um, Job, by the way, if you don't place Job properly in the chronology of the Old Testament, it can be confusing. Job is a patriarchal era figure, not a law of Moses era figure, right? He's like back in the time of Abraham, not in the time of the law. So that's important to note. That's why it's all pretty consistent with, with the rest when you get the timing right. Okay, then we have the second form of God communication with, with mankind, which we still rely upon right now, today, which is what? The written word. Um, let me see if I'm getting to that. Yeah, I guess that would be visions. That would be visions. Um, and I don't know, you know, I've I've had a lot of dreams. I had a dream last night. I mean... I dream a lot. I'm sure all of you do as well. Uh, But I've never thought God was speaking to me through that. And it seems like in Scripture they kind of know it. So it must be differentiated from the traditional type of dreams that we have. Maybe it's got a greater level of clarity. I can tell you this every single dream I've ever had, I, I have a theory on dreams, by the way, and I'm not a psychologist, but. I am a preacher and I study the Bible instead of Freud, so I think that's better. But um, I, I feel that, I think that dreams, and this is just from personal observation, I think dreams are an emotional outlet. Every dream I have ever had, had one central emotion. Now, there's a lot of different types of emotions. Sometimes I remember being a kid and flying like I was Superman. That was like exhilaration, you know. I remember also being a kid and having the worst nightmare of my life where Scooby-Doo, Shaggy and I were running across an airfield and there was an airplane monster about to squish us. I'm not kidding. I was eight years old. I still remember it like it was yesterday. It was terrifying. I mean, come on, Shaggy, let's go. You know, and and, oh, Scoob, Gary Scoob, let's go. You know, I mean, it was awful, but it had a central emotion. And then there's emotions, betrayal, you know, you can have emotions of betrayal. You can have emotions of fear. I mean, if you've got the gun in your hand and you can't physically pull the trigger, you know. I mean, the, it seems to me that every, I've never had a dream that was rational. All of my dreams, all of my life, have had some central emotion. And, you know, we're emotional beings, so maybe that's the answer. I don't know. Freud would probably disagree, but he was nuts, so it doesn't matter. He was nuts. All right, so um, dreams, that's a good point. And then there's, of course, the written word. Moses, uh, from the time came, uh, finally came, became necessary for God to present his will in a more permanent manner. Uh, Moses, Moses was the first person mentioned in the Bible as writing anything. I mean, you can look it up, but he's the first person. He lived about 1500 BC and authored, according to strict Jewish tradition, the first five books called the Pentateuch. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, I want to tell you that I hope you'll study those books diligently. Because I have found more spiritual depth in the recent years of my life. Because as a young man, I studied a whole lot of the New Testament. Because I'm a preacher. You know, and that's got the... So, I mean, we we live on the New Testament, right? And I studied some of the great prophets, and I studied a lot of Psalms and Proverbs and wisdom literature. And I studied the stories of the Pentateuch, meaning, you know, all the stuff with Abraham's life, and of course Joseph, and all those great stories. But I studied, I don't know if studied is the right word, I read Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And I think that's probably true of a lot of us. We don't give it diligent study, Leviticus numbers and Deuteronomy. And you've heard me talk a lot in the last couple of years from especially Deuteronomy. It is now my favorite book of the Old Testament because it's still steeped in a lot of that Old Testament law. But there is so much there about God's character and his desire for relationship with mankind. I mean, and, and just... Some of the things that we know and are beloved to us that that have just kind of been pulled out, but when you read it in context, it's so powerful. Like, "Hear, O Israel: The Lord your God is one God. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy strength." And even in Leviticus, now Leviticus, it's it's it can be a chore. It can be because it's like reading a legal manual. And it goes through. That's exactly what it was. That's what it was. It was a list of laws. But still, when you read and try to put yourself in the context of an ancient world where nobody had any rights, where mankind was primitive by our societal standards, and then you see this organization that God, and the protections that God put, it, put up in place for even the lowliest of societies. Israel had the only system in the world that provided for the poor in the whole world, Israel, people look at that and and, and they judge it based upon culture today. But if you look at it based upon ancient culture, Israel had the most progressive human rights. Protecting women? There's massive protections for, for women in that. Oh, I know, you can pull out things that talk about if a man sells his wife as a slave, then this person has to, you know, this, that, or the other. But you got to understand, women meant nothing everywhere in the whole world. And God put in place protections so that they would always be cared for, always be taken care of, always be fed, always be sheltered. And if they didn't do it, it was death. Because he had the most comprehensive societal system. And when you read it through the lens of knowing history, culture of the ancient world, a barbarian age before even the world's great societies were developed. I mean, there was no Babylon. There was no Persia. There was no Greeks. There was no Rome. It was a, it was a tribal era of, of barbarianism unless you lived in Israel. And then there was a society that had laws that even the king wasn't above those laws. Even the king. It's the first culture in the world where the law is absolutely sovereign even over the king absolutely sovereign it's it's a beautiful thing he's the one that taught me that course and it was eye opening absolutely uh, yes, Ron? I'm just going to mention, you can't really understand Paul if you don't understand the Old Testament. Uh-huh. He draws everything How is of the Old Testament, particularly Deuteronomy, the Isaiah. You just can't really understand him unless you have some understanding of the Old Testament. It's mm-hmm. absolutely right. And especially the book of Hebrews, regardless of who wrote it. Yeah. I mean, you you can't... <sighs> Hebrews comes alive when you understand that Old Testament sacrificial system. Yeah, I mean, because it, then it's just like, wow, this is really about this. I mean, it's like chapter after chapter in the book of Hebrews. So we do ourselves a disservice when we just read through that real quick. Very true. So, um, Moses, about 1,500, those that came after, once the law of God was put into writing, it was only natural that other revelations and events would be recorded. Thus, Moses' successor, Joshua, writing words in the book of the law of God, that's from Joshua twenty four twenty six, says that Joshua wrote down in the book of the law of God. This, in turn, became the practice of other men of God who wrote prophecy or history Therefore, the Old Covenant grew gradually and finally was compiled to an accepted collection about 400 BC. And that, of course, puts it about 400 years before the time of Christ. Run. Theology has totally... Debunked that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was mm-hmm. a very prominent theory. Right. Right. How do you say that, guys? What's... I know. I,
1: can't say his name. What's... I, know. I
0: know who you're talking about, the theologian. I I can't say his name. Yeah. Well, he said that it was formerly, you know, going back 100 years or so, that a lot of biblical skeptics, and a lot of... What's sad is that a lot of biblical skeptics are professors of theology, but um, one of the, I forget his name too. Yeah, it's a, he's a German, yeah. a German theologian. He was kind of it in the theological world for a long time. And he said Moses didn't write the Pentateuch because there was no writing at that time. No one wrote. It hadn't been developed yet. The problem is in the last hundred years, archaeologists have found um, pillars and, you know, different tablets that predated Moses by like 800 years. So that's been totally debunked in the last 100 years or so. Because he would say it was fictional. Because you find that out in the Bible, see? But archaeology has found physical evidence of writing. And the Egyptians, I mean, that far predated... I mean, we have Egyptian writings in, in, in all sorts of tombs and things that far predate the time of Moses. I actually think the Israelites probably were the ones who built a lot of that, what we see in that 400 years of slavery as far as pyramids and, and you know, sphinxes and all of those, those things. Really, very interesting. very good point well the old testament we see today as it appears in our english bibles differs slightly in its order from that of the hebrew bible so the bible that jesus read the hebrew old testament that jesus would have read when he went to synagogue would differ not in the books that it has and the dead sea scrolls um were absolutely evidence of the reliability of that because they're dated a hundred years before christ and so it's it's That was a magnificent archeological find found in 1948. So the English arrangement is derived from the Latin Vulgate translation, which in turn is derived from the Septuagint or Greek version. So when Jesus read the Septuagint, which he quoted often, that would have been the same order we have. But the differences are as follows. The English Bible has five books of the law, then 12 books of history, five books of poetry, five books of the major prophets, and 12 books of the minor prophets. Hey, that's your Old Testament um, division. So, the Hebrew Bible, the law was the same, five books of the law. Then it had what was called the prophets, and they had what they called the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And then they had what they called the later prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the book of 12. Anybody know what the book of 12 would be? The minor prophets. And then they had what they called the writings, Psalm, Proverb, Job, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. So, same books, just different organization. So we see the arrangement of the Hebrew Bible contains only three divisions. Did you see that? The law, the prophets, and the writings. Somebody read Luke 24, 44 before we have to go. You got it, Don? You mind? Luke 24, 44. So we again. I mentioned. You notice that's three divisions: law, prophet, and writings. And in Luke twenty four forty four, it says this. Whenever he gets there, yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. That's right. Twenty four forty four. The Law of Moses, the Prophets, and another word for the writings, the Psalms. The three divisions of the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible. So regardless of any arrangement differences, one thing is noted, that the books included in the English Bible are exactly the same as those found in the Hebrew Bible. So when the Apostle Paul talks about the Scriptures, he's meaning your exact Old Testament. Okay. When Jesus talks about and the scriptures say, he's talking about the same Old Testament that you read, which I think is an important thing to know. All right, we'll get into the New Testament next week um, because we don't have time in a minute and a half. And we're also going to talk about the languages of the Bible, which the Bible is written in three distinct languages, and all of them have their own significance in one way or another. So, any more comments about the Bible in general or the, the Old Testament specifically, Bill Gahl? This deals the New Testament and how there's different writings um, that were you know, still available today. What so about the Old Testament? Um, obviously, um, the Psalms that uh, Moses had were the, uh, but how many? Works of the Old Testament still <clears throat> or, 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 you know, like, what are
1: the original articles of the Old Testament?
0: Well, those are so lost in antiquity, but there's really very little debate about that ever, because the Dead Sea Scrolls kind of ended that debate about that when they were found in 1948, because it had, in essence, now there were pieces of a few of them missing because of they've been torn off or age or whatever, but it contained a complete, pretty much, copy of the Old Testament as we have it now. And it's dated 100 years before Jesus, which was found by a shepherd boy who lost a sheep who ran into a cave, and he found all these 2,000-plus-year-old clay pots where the Essenes, that was kind of a... People thought John the Baptist was an Essene. He wasn't, but they were, were separatists, and they were scribes, and they had recorded... All of these things and hidden them away from the Romans, and wow, what a, the greatest I think the greatest archaeological whatever that word is ever. So, uh, yeah, he didn't get a lot of money for it. No, he should have got millions of dollars for it. All right, we're done today. New Testament next time. Appreciate you. Interesting.